You're listening to the eighth episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for or to or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album, Spurned, which is an old-fashioned word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to the episode like one watches a video of a car accident, over and over, in slow motion. Episode 8, Almost Never. Well, I hope you're wearing your mask while listening to this episode, because this year, Santa brought me COVID for Christmas, and I feel like absolute garbage. The topic of this week's song is a hard one to talk about, too. Friends in controlling, abusive, neglectful relationships. We know that when children are growing up, parents who over-control, who are abusive or neglectful of the child's needs, really do a number on them, leave a big bootmark on their personalities and their lives. These problems are going to show up repeatedly when those kids eventually try to have relationships of their own. But it's tough to talk about because we're looking at abuse and neglect and control in relationships. And if we listen to some, that's all about men being responsible to end that kind of stuff once and for all for women who need us to do that for them. Men need to hold other men accountable. Smile, sweetie. Come on. To say the right thing. To act the right way. Bro, not cool, not cool. Some already are. Thing is, men aren't supposed to talk for women. Women don't actually need men. Men aren't really supposed to talk about women, except in ways we imagine women might approve of. Men are, in fact, only to talk to women if the women in question want us to, subject to change without notice. And this is a one-way set of protocols, to be certain. I've never met a woman who was worried she might sound sexist or hateful when talking about men in general. That just isn't a thing. And I really don't know how divided between the sexes this topic needs to be. I was raised to view male and female roles, lives, and inner selves as very different, and I've never quite gotten over that. I guess we'll see what I can manage. This is about feelings, though. Men aren't necessarily supposed to have feelings, to the extent of talking about most of them very much, especially powerful ones. I'm being very atypical in spending so much time expressing mine. I'm supposed to have a woman around the house doing that for me, I think, telling me what I'm actually feeling, and so on. If men have feelings, they're supposed to be appropriate feelings, convenient feelings, ones that don't put others out. Men are supposed to, in theory, be able to cry, of course, but only when women are trying to get us to. The only feelings stereotypically associated specifically with men are wrathful ones. And when we think angry man, we think abuser. Because admittedly, angry men can be very dangerous. But angry women can be very dangerous too, especially if what they're attacking isn't just your physical safety. This song is partly about not crying, about not being able to, of being a depressive who can't cry in a world still subscribing to outmoded Freudian theories about bottled up or repressed feelings. The song also references my tendency to never throw up even when I feel like it. Even right in the midst of COVID, I'm not throwing up at all. As to crying, I've worked primarily with and been supervised by women my whole life with a minor in menopausal ones. 
In my experience, women tend to be better at crying than men are, especially on the job. Some woman or other, employee or customer, teacher or student, crying in the workplace is a normal weekly sign of the stresses and strains that they're under. They get squeezed too hard and tears leak out. No one sees it as terribly unusual either. Certainly not all women cry at work, but every time it happens, it's far from unprecedented. I spoke with Megan about this. Usually I have no problem with it. If I need to cry, I will cry and I feel better for it. And I always kind of welcome it because I, I know I'll feel better and I'll be able to sort of move through things. But through this situation, I don't know, I kind of, my feelings kind of got a bit frozen, almost like stuck in a trauma response and I couldn't do anything. And then obviously today it all just hit me and I ended up crying and literally sobbing, but I felt so much better afterwards. And I was like, why didn't I do this a month ago when this started? Maybe I'd feel better. I mean, I normally work with women and it's my experience that women occasionally need to cry at work. Is that your experience too? Uh, yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of times like that. And I don't see guys crying at work. And I also don't think it would be okay if we did. People would panic. Yeah, probably. I wish you would, though. Ever seen a man crying at work and needing a hug? Um, not crying, but definitely needing a hug. I used to be the person that everyone would come and complain to. Mm -hmm. So, like, in, in the uh, Brethren job, um, there was the warehouse lot that were, like, normal people. They would always come and find me to, like, kind of unload everything and swear and whatever because I was obviously non-community so they could do that mm -hmm. well along with crying uh, do you think swearing um, could serve kind of the same function especially for men yeah definitely I feel like where women kind of get overwhelmed we then cry men end up becoming a bit shouty and sweary instead so it's just a different emotional response to the same kind of problem which is probably not good for the people around us but Maybe it's what works emotionally is to get shouty. Yeah, I think so. And I think having someone just to kind of listen to you be shouty definitely helps. I've been working my whole life, and I've pretty much never seen a man cry on the job. And when I get squeezed, it's not tears that are wanting to leak out usually. I find I'm wanting to start taking people and furniture apart with my bare hands, though I have lived a remarkably unviolent life. Those frustrated, angry feelings stay locked away throughout my life with all the other ones. I work with women and children, so I have to be careful about feelings and to never scare anyone over much. If you're a man, you have to watch it as to being intimidating around women and children. But in the few jobs I've had where I was working almost entirely with men, mostly lifting heavy things and using hand tools and machines, these things were not big concerns at all. No one worried about offending or intimidating other men. No one cried, and... Men were considerably more careful about not disrespecting or pushing each other around beyond a certain point because we knew that physical violence was closer to the surface than it would be in some workplace settings. So if things ever went there, it was going to be serious. When you use nothing but brute force to make your money all day in the blistering sun and driving rain, and people start to get on your nerves on purpose, that's different than it is in air conditioning under fluorescent lighting. Women who have done jobs that involve carrying a lot of heavy things are a whole different story. Nurses, for example, they're far more likely to open doors or ask if you need help than they are to block your way, standing several bodies abreast, blocking an entire sidewalk in order to discuss who saw whom, where, when, and with whom wearing what after what happened. Because nurses carry way too many heavy things, including people, often without anyone to help them. They know. 
Another example from my own life is teenage girls who have to heft 40-pound bags of cat litter on the job. They know how much they weigh to cradle in the crook of one's elbow, so they get out of your way when you're carrying one, tell you if they've memorized or written down the code so they don't need you to lift it up onto the counter, and may even ask if you need a cart or help getting the bag out to the car. Very few things make me feel older than them doing that, but it's very considerate. Sure, we men are on average a bit stronger and used to opening difficult pickle jars and all of that, so the view is that it's always us that's doing the intimidating, controlling, neglecting, and abuse, but Dave Pelzer and many others have a very different story to tell. After my mom uh, held my arm over a gas stove for several, several seconds, and she just burnt the arm, skin, and I want to really get into it, but afterwards she threw me down the stairs where I lived in the basement. When it began in the very, you know, age three and a half, four, I believed I was a bad child. I, I cried too much or I was always somehow getting in trouble. I believed I deserved the treatment that I received. But as things digressed after age eight, and especially before I was rescued, uh, she wasn't the mom anymore. She was another persona to me. Uh, to the point, uh, I, she used to call me David, then the boy, then it. From age 8 to age 12, I mean, things got progressively worse, obviously, between my mother and I. And I just had to develop little systems. If I would, I would hide food in a garbage can that she would lace with ammonia. Okay, so the first time that didn't work. So now I take foil and paper towel and wrap it around the food so it doesn't maybe splash over. Or uh, when I'm getting physically beaten, I had to learn to tighten parts of my body. When you're in the bottom of a basement, again, there's nothing. It's a void. It's less than zero. And the big question asked by the slack-jawed incredulencia is, if your church and or romantic relationship is hurting you, why don't you just leave? Why indeed? Ruth had this to share. I can speak to the experience of watching a friend in an abusive relationship because I've gone through it a couple of times with some close friends. It is absolutely wrenching for me the only thing I could do for my friends was to be there for them and let them know that I'm their friend they're always welcome to my home my home is a safe place they're always welcome for a meal or a bed or a cup of tea or a shoulder to cry on and I could show them by my own lived example that there is a rich, beautiful, and joyful life possible on the other side of the abusive relationship. But waiting for my friends to understand the truth and the reality of their situation and to get to that point where they were ready to leave was almost as painful to me as being in a abusive relationship myself because I love my friends and I hurt with them. And once my friends did get out, the best way that I could help them was to share with them my own experience and what I'd gone through because I'm further along on the path of healing than they are. And I could make my friends feel not alone and reassure them that what they were going through was normal. And I could cry with them and grieve with them and just be with them. I'm so thankful that 
today I have two friends who are out and safe. I'll never forget what that felt like. Knowing that I could lose my friends. Friends I can't imagine my life without. To domestic violence. So painful. It's very hard to understand why people don't simply leave controlling, abusive relationships. In my early and middle 20s dealing with situations of this kind, I had only one point of connection I could come up with to try to tell myself I understood what was going on and what I was seeing, at least a bit. When I was really little, my grandfather had a farm. He had fields and forests spreading off into the distance and a huge ancient wooden barn and workhorses and cows and chickens and pigs. Well, one day when I was quite small, my father got a pretty serious phone call. And we drove over and saw the smoldering remains of the barn, which had burned to the ground in the night. And in the charred area that used to be a barn were the charred remains of workhorses, cows, chickens, and pigs. And I'd thought back then about how terrible it was that these animals had been locked in this barn, trapped as the flames rose higher, only they hadn't been. The gate had been open for them to go out, and they hadn't done that. When the smoke and flames started, they were terrified, so they hid in the barn for safety. And what they thought of as home, familiar, safe, was what ended up killing them. If they'd only trotted out of that barn, they would have survived the fire. And that, I told myself a couple of decades later, seemed to be what I was seeing with these folks in controlling and abusive relationships. I wasn't far enough along in my thinking to recognize that this is what I was living out, with my own church situation, clinging to it, terrified of being kicked out, as the soul-consuming, crushing environment continued to take its toll on me. But yes, I felt like this is what I was seeing with these people's domestic problems, people who clung frantically to home, even when home was fatal. I was messaging with Laura recently, as she's written her PhD thesis about the process of getting on with one's life when one has been raised in a uh, the legal department of Laura's University advises use of the term high-demand religious group instead of the C-word because people sue. There's a lot of good information on the subject. Things about the kind of Stockholm Syndrome a lot of people have about their parents or the religious group they grew up in. The fact that many grow up without their emotional needs being met at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Many of us grew up unable to stop cutting most positive emotion and affect from our voices, faces, and day. Many of us grew up in an environment where there wasn't a lot of noise and jubilance and enthusiasm, so just like our parents and the old folks at meeting, we find we still scowl and get annoyed or even uncomfortable when impromptu shrieking and laughing and energetic hijinks break out where we are, say, worshipping or working. Upsetting to us doesn't feel like home. And it might just draw the ire of an authority figure, maybe from us. Because when we kids were loud, my dad roared at us like an enraged bear. And my mother said, I'm tired, don't jar me. That's because they were teachers, beyond sick and tired of noisy kids at that point in their day. I really, really relate now. But some of us flinch visibly at the sound of someone breaking out cackling with shrieking laughter like a drunk jackal in a quiet restaurant. Some of us reflexively skip past any social media story that has much or any energetic sound with it, including perky female voices with vocal fry and crisp perky music. Share some sunshine. Now available in Raspberry. Hey, isn't that your app? Canada? Gain a new friend. 
meet your name. Your world is in constant motion. IKEA, bring home to life. Most of the ads that get pushed to my phone, algorithm aside, despite me being someone who absolutely loathes hot beverages of any kind, and particularly anything of any temperature at all that is gratuitously flavored like coffee or tea, these ads seem absolutely hell-bent and determined to make me drink things all the time, mainly by simulating the sounds of someone pouring and drinking and sighing in delight ah, right in my ear, which is about as likely to work in my case as close my King Kyle as he crunches his cornflakes is going to make me hungry for some of those. 40% less sugar, 100% delicious. already like the product, these ads function as spending triggers to get you buying some more. If you already dislike the product, though, as you might dislike, say, sauerkraut, it's like, hello and welcome to the evening news. But first, would you like some sauerkraut? Welcome to Flying Squirrel Indoor Trampoline Ticket Sales. Would you like some sauerkraut? Your film is about to start, but first, are you sure you wouldn't like some sauerkraut? Okay, sir, here's your carrot cake. Can I go ahead and put some sauerkraut on that for you? Your flight with WestJet is reserved. Would you like to upgrade for extra sauerkraut? If only I could unsubscribe from all coffee and tea-related offers for the rest of the year. It also strikes me that, as a child, if our family was over-visiting at someone's house where there was a TV in another room, and if we kids were sneakily watching Magnum P.I. on it and hoping our parents wouldn't figure it out, it was often the volume bump when the commercials came on that might summon parents in to kick us off that offending box. Because some of us grew up in a quiet house where if any startling noise broke out, the reaction to it was quite likely to escalate to shouting and thrown things. Some of us attended churches where no matter what, it never got loud. People's lives were ruined. The community split, all with quiet, calm, brittle voices and smiles, damning denunciations delivered in hushed, godly tones. Some of us have found a remarkable amount of delight in playing electric guitar, turned up loud, precisely because... This might get loud for a second. Making a whole lot of racket and not getting stopped or scolded or threatened, of getting to really let rip and it not starting something bad. And not everyone is so obviously outwardly affected in the same way by upbringings of this sort. I know more than one person who neglected and abused as a child, grew up to be a medal-winning father, mother, grandparent, foster parent, teacher, or whatever. I say teacher because I've worked with more than one teacher who had an absolutely terrible childhood and makes a career out of being the most amazing, caring, vigilant, hardworking teacher ever. Me, I'm more of a grouchy teacher who doesn't want to bother with students' council and spirit weeks and assemblies and special things like that. At best, I stay after school for a few hours each week so kids can play Dungeons and Dragons or trivia in my classroom. But I've worked in situations where the teachers who are running these school-wide theme days, these assemblies, fundraisers, and activities were people who'd given me some kind of clue as to their childhoods. Some pretty grim stories lay behind them trying to make things fun for young teens, more fun than their own lives. Some other people with troubled pasts go on to find themselves in romantic relationships that continue the cycle, though. 
ones in which they are shamed, emotionally and sometimes physically abused, neglected, and controlled. We know this. We don't know how to talk about it, though, because freedom of personal choice is the cardinal virtue in modern society. We're never supposed to judge anyone unless they're being intolerant or judgmental. So it's hard to talk about abuse, neglect, and control. And normally, for some reason, we pretend that only men do these things, and only women suffer these things. But actually, you don't need a great deal of upper body strength to shame, emotionally abuse, neglect, and control your partner, kids, or elderly parents. It's an equal opportunity thing. And why am I even talking about this? Um, because it's been an all-too-large part of my life, and I'm not the only one. Here's some sample sexism. Sex is something, something men do, do and, and women have, have done, done to them. them. That's sexist, and not generally true. And now, listen to the same thing, only with violence. Violence, violence is, something is something men do, and women have, have done, done to them. them. Again, sexist, and not reliably true. It's not that men never get abused in relationships. We know they do. It's just that we don't care. Also, men tend to be marginally better at the physical and sexual abuse end of the whole nasty picture. But it is a whole nasty picture, if you have a look at it, which we're going to do. Bullying. The Me Too movement against sexual harassment. masculinity. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. Who's the daddy? What I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. A few years ago, there was a particularly ham-fisted cringe attempt by the Procter & Gamble Company in aid of selling their Gillette products to men to do a men-need-to-do-better, stand-up-and-speak-out ad. The implication was that abuse is a thing men, and boys who looked far too young to shave, do, and that the answer to it is men policing each other better, that the only reason abuse of anyone happens at all is because men aren't stopping it aren't being the white knights in shining armor, aren't saving the strong, brave damsels in distress from all the toxic masculinity that runs through the veins of all male creatures. The message wasn't subtle. It was saying that women and children feel intimidated sometimes. It is men and boys who are the cause of that. So we men need to get each other to stop it by talking publicly about it. See it, name it, shame it. Now, why didn't I think of that back in the day? I will admit that when it comes to sexual assault of the kind we're normally imagining when we hear the words sexual assault, and when it comes to punching and throwing things, certainly, men are statistically in a class of their own, see Olympic records. And the reason for my writing songs like the one discussed in this episode is my having far too many women in my life who have confided in me as to abuse. But I've almost always chosen to support the woman rather than attack the men. I've tried it the other way. Doesn't work. Don't believe me? Try it. Carol had this to say on the subject. Lots of women have confided in me that their husband or boyfriend was emotionally or sexually or financially abusive or addicted or whatever, but never in front of me. I was never, I was never like in a room where I could say, dude, that's not cool. And if I was, if I sort of interposed myself in their relationship and said, I didn't like how he was treating her, I think she would have suffered. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a reason that She's not just dealing with it directly, you know. There's a fear. There's a, there's something there, you know. I tried one time. I invited a couple out. She kept confiding, so I invited them out for supper. And I told them, I said, you know, 
and I, I started really gently. I just basically said, a lot of people are aware that your, your wife's kind of scared of you. You're, you're kind of scary. And they, they, they both just denied it and, you know, laughed and he never spoke to me again. And she eventually came back to confiding in me, but it put a major kink in me helping any of them or doing any good at all. Yeah. I think it's brings the reality. So right in front of you, you know, mm-hmm. or them. You can't force people okay. to see things your way. Yeah. And then seeing something as painful or something like that, I don't think it's something that you, I think you have to voluntarily be willing to see it, you know. Anson had things to say. My experience leads me to believe that if there's a couple and you think you see abuse and you just sort of roughly go in and swear at the guy and say, you're an abuser, you need to stop. You know, and like you can make things really worse by doing that in my oh, experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It can be very irresponsible yeah. to powder keg that situation. Yeah. My best friend is actually going through that at the moment. I wouldn't say it was like fully ab- abusive, but he was not very nice. You know, he cheated on her. Um, he got he got in her face at one point, you know, stuff like that. And it did wind me up because I'm like, he's hurting you. How can you not see that he's like doing these things and treating you this way? Just leave. But she couldn't. And he ended up dumping her and she's still heartbroken and he's moved on. And I'm like, he cheated on you. Like, come on, you deserve better. But now having been in the sort of situation where a guy is repeatedly hurting me, it's a bit like, okay, I get it. You're hooked and you don't want to let go. Hmm. But I mean, in your case, he's not his own master he's being he's having his life and even his thinking run by his church yeah i mean that's really frustrating because i know that if it was just him he would be living here with me now and we'd be happy Mm -hmm. now these other situations though are men who are operating fully under their own steam and getting their own nasty little ideas um, why does that happen that these relationships, how do people even start and maintain relationships when the guy's going to be, or it can be the girl too, they're going to be controlling and neglectful and abusive and all that. How do these relationships even happen? I think it's when you have one partner that is willing to give their all for somebody and the other person likes that and they will take, take, take. Um, and they'll also push to see how it will go. And if you set up, up your own boundaries they will keep pushing to see okay how badly can I treat this person before they give in and if you keep going back to them or keep allowing it then the behavior will just get worse because it's unchecked and I think you know pushing the boundaries it's kind of most people end up doing that um I I have a lot of uh experience both professionally and and personally in that regard and um I think I mean one any any discussion today in 2022 about abuse that um, doesn't acknowledge that we kind of have this ever expanding definition of abuse. Yeah, I think that's that's a problem. But but I, I will readily acknowledge that we did need to expand the definition because you know when we were uh, children and even even young adults, I mean, abuse it largely meant. It meant primarily physical abuse and then probably name calling, shouting, things like that. But there are other ways to be abusive. Mm-hmm. That said, I think in our, you know, kind of self-absorbed, narcissistic, individualistic, you know, way of thinking, 
I think we've really come to the point where anybody who feels mistreated, they feel entitled to say, well, you, you're, you're being abusive. Well, just being divorced is pretty much unheard of in the meeting. You're not going to likely get advice for the help you need if it, if it should take that path or it needs to. It's likely going to be, let's look at every other angle and somehow you know, you must be doing something to be making it so bad. Kind of must, thing. must be your fault. I had a, yeah. I had a friend who her husband was clearly on drugs and a cheater and all this stuff. And everyone was only telling her that there was no reason to leave him kind of thing. And it's, it's hard to know how to even wrap my mind around people saying that. <laughs> yeah. It seems so common that that's the advice is, isn't there some way you can make it work? Maybe that maybe there's some way that you, you can pray for him harder from harder or not be so bothered or try this and that and i've has i've seen some cases too where the women are just relentlessly miserable um nothing's good enough uh, just nothing you know why can't you be like this case as well which i wouldn't necessarily say is a, a violent situation but it's it's certainly a miserable one we know that men abuse control and neglect people countless tv shows movies and gillette commercials depict this but does gendering the problem make sense? Let's see if I can briefly give my take on the Gillette ad thing. I'm not good at briefly. The real purpose of any Gillette ad is to ensure that I spend my money for shaving products on their product. Men don't really have the option exactly to simply not shave or groom their faces in any way at all. Most of us, even those of us with facial hair, buy stuff related to caring for it. And that's where Gillette always came in. When I was 19 and negotiating the topiary landscape of my own face, Gillette was on TV looking for and getting my money with their Gillette, the best a man can get ads, text and subtext. The text was that Gillette products were the best thing I, a young man, could get at the store in terms of shaving products. The subtext was that I, a young man, should feel very free to feel good about being a young man. It was okay to be what I was, and it was okay to pamper myself with quality shaving products because I deserved it, because I was special. But in the COVID-era ad, there was a clear bait-and-switch going on. The text wasn't about shaving products at all anymore. They barely featured in the ad. The text was about taking a position against the subtext of the 1989 ad, the stuff about feeling good. The new ad was about objecting to the idea that it was okay to feel good about being a man unless you could also claim to be part of the carefully schooled, thoroughly housebroken wave of the future tribe of new men who mainly serve the comfort and safety of women, serving as their gatekeepers and protectors. Suddenly, the ad was looking back at us men in the 90s and saying, was that really the best a man can get, as in the best a man can be? And saying, I don't think so. We can be better than that. We have to be better than that. We know better than that. The text was that unless we try really hard, men suck because the patriarchy, society, and toxic masculinity. Now, it's okay to feel good about being a man or presumably even a teenage boy only if you were recanting sexism and all its works and denouncing our past selves and taking a stance against bullying, even if we weren't even born when the 80s ad came out. Is there and has there ever been bullying and sexism? Of course. But put simply, you want my money? Don't judge me and tell me to try harder and do better. I had plenty of that at church growing up. If I wanted a sermon for my shaving products, I'd maybe try LSD. What's next? McDonald's? I'm loving it, and I'm not such a big racist anymore, at least lately. 
I know these performative shame and piety things are filling a gap left by Catholicism and other dwindling institutions, but I'm not your audience if you want to get my money by assuring me that at Kleenex Facial Tissue, we're on a crusade, conducting an inquisition, a reformation, or a revival. I'm not going to respond well if your marketing strategy is, come to confession with Cadbury cream eggs and we'll tell you how to make contrition for all the mortal and venial things you and people like you have done. I should have a shirt with that printed right across the chest. I grew up Plymouth Brethren. Don't preach at me, brother. This episode is brought to you by Schick. We design razors for everyone, with features specifically designed to meet every kind of hair removal need. In the case of the many women who have confided in me as to their life problems, most of them were not at the time suffering a lot of sexual or other physical assaults. But that didn't mean their lives were okay. Just like with all of us who were physically punished for trivial church-related offenses as children, for example, getting spanked with a ping-pong paddle-like spanking implement for whispering or squirming or fidgeting in any of the three church services we attended each Sunday, what actually left marks was mostly the shame, the control, the breaking down of one's personality and agency, and the sterile, cold, empty environment of humorless, emotional neglect. It wasn't being hit with a wooden paddle for liking Spider-Man that hurt long-term. It was loving Spider-Man and being a trusting child and being mostly convinced by adults with power that this interest in superheroes made kids like me morally corrupt, inferior sorts of people, especially as compared to proper church kids. You'll note me doing my thing here. I have never been a woman in an abusive relationship, so what I tend to do is look for connection points, things that have happened to me, ways in which I can try somewhat to understand. But my family was strict, so I know, and I've been told, that I was held up as an example to other brethren kids for how their parents wished they'd behave. I sat more still, listened harder, and remembered more than many people's kids. I wasn't even allowed to wear jeans, shirts with graphics or stripes on them, or running shoes to any of the church meetings each week. So I was both suffering and helping instill the shame church folks used to squeeze children into the little molds they needed them to fit into, feeling like a terrible person about to get into trouble 24-7. Now that's not the same thing as getting beat up by someone who's bigger. That happened to me a whole lot too, until I grew to my adult size. Even after I was an adult, I had a beer bottle broken across my face by someone who mistook me for the gay guy up the road. But the cold, soul-crushing control, shame, and neglect is different from physical violence. One way it's different is it's harder to define, talk about, or deal with in any sensible way. Unlike when there's a bigger guy named Rob repeatedly punching you really hard in the back of the head in Mr. Kinsman's geography class, with the social and emotional stuff, it's hard to even tell anyone what happened and make them understand what's going on. But again, is social and emotional shame, control, threats, and intimidation a gendered thing mainly? Does it mainly happen to adult women? Is it mainly a thing men do? Growing up, the church girls and women more than kept up in these areas. There was true equality. There was a whole lot of female representation in it. Women are generally bigger and stronger than their young siblings as children and than their own children and elderly parents when they're adults. I know I got into trouble one time when I was seven for biting the much bigger older neighborhood girl on the bus for repeatedly slapping me for not doing every single thing she said as she expected everyone in her vicinity to do. And that didn't make her stop physically imposing her will on me along with the others. What fixed that was me growing a bit and repeatedly engaging her physically when she laid hands on me. I got in trouble for biting her, so eventually, when she'd shove me and slap me, all I had to do was show her I was, though smaller, strong enough to shove her back hard and mean it. That fixed everything. 
Of course, she got me into trouble for doing that, too. I was, after all, the male in that scenario. Many kids suffer neglect or physical or emotional abuse in some form, and sometimes they pass what's been or is being done to them on to anyone they can. And let's move this a step beyond me and church and my own upbringing. I have experienced, as many of you may have as well, the loss of several of my male friends, not because of any rift or conflict, but simply because once they started a relationship with a specific woman, she started systematically throwing away more and more of his stuff, substituting her own stuff in their living space, ending more and more of his hobbies, having him engage in hers instead, and prying him away entirely from what had been his family and friend circles, substituting her own in their place. Her stuff was normal and good, but every single element of his had to be justified or jettisoned. That's how some people do relationships. Reminds me of how my dad was with my mom, too, actually. Now, is that abusive and controlling? Depends, I suppose. If he's cool with it, if he sees it as at best an improvement and at worst a life change he's willing to live with in order to have the relationship, then I don't think it is. But what if he isn't willing and is getting emotionally railroaded, shamed, threatened, and emotionally crushed? What if he walks through the rest of his evenings on eggshells, terrified of angering his partner? What if his social life and personal belongings are taken and are being held for ransom with a threat of ending the relationship? Now, I'm sure we know that even if a man is bigger and stronger, this is no guarantee his domestic partner may not physically attack him. I think the furthest I'm going to go as to gendering this issue is to agree that although it's not fun for anyone to be in a messy relationship, men do not generally need to worry as much about their physical safety in life as women do. Uh, well, statistically, we are more likely to get hurt, particularly at the hands of other men, but we don't walk around aware of that like women are. If we set aside for one moment something that is our absolute favorite toy to play with of all in 2023, gender, we see the human species as a bunch of people living together, some of whom will hurt and coerce and act cruelly towards others. What determines whether or not the bad human beings are likely to hurt other human beings has less to do with gender and more to do with capability. And the facts are that most adults can physically best most children and the ill and the elderly, so some of them will. And the majority of men can physically best the majority of women, so the bad ones may do that as well. Of course, an unacceptable number of people are going to be physically injured today, and an unacceptably high number of them are going to be hurt by men. Of course, the majority of the people hurt by men today are going to be other men, but we don't really care, do we? It doesn't seem to matter whether we blame nature or nurture, society or biology, we have a deep, visceral, outraged response to tales of stronger people hurting weaker people. Even at age 53, and with some MS-related problems, I'm not old enough, or sick enough yet, for people to really place much emphasis on those immutable characteristics if I appeared in the newspaper as a victim of an attack by, say, a 23-year-old male. But, if I appeared in the newspaper as a victim of an attack by a 23-year-old female, people would have nothing but questions, all of the questions, starting out with what I might have done to provoke her to act in this way. Now, there are 23-year-old women who are trained ultimate fighters, who are much fitter than I am, but still, nobody cares. And as Curry will say in a telegram to the Wicked Mailbag later in this episode, rightly so, it's not that men are the only humans hurting other humans, it's that attacks by men much more frequently result in severe injury and death, sometimes of women and children, and we do care about that. This episode is going to muddy the waters thoroughly as to what constitutes an abusive relationship, not stopping at mere physical abuse. 
Emily, a retired police officer, had troubling insights to add on this subject. How prepared are you for protecting yourself? Like how much training did you have as a police officer? What do you do for a hobby now? That means you're pretty comfortable with physical self-defense. I'm not as good as what I used to be. I did two years worth of kickboxing when I was a teenager. And then when I joined the police, we would have self-defense training every six months, as well as health and safety, box mm-hmm. standard, first aid. Yeah. And um, I don't think anyone, even in the police, can completely prepare you. In the police, you're very lucky because you have your stab vest and cuffs, baton, pepper spray. So you have those other tools for defense very quickly. And if you're really, really lucky, you get the taser. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so in order to physically defend yourself, it's not used as often as what you might think because you have those tools at your, you know, disposal quite quickly. But with protecting yourself physically through martial arts and the training, I think I'm quite confident to a degree that I could at least hurt someone quite badly depending on the ratio of how big they are how muscular they are because you still do boxing yeah that's boxer size it's a bit cheaty really but still I've got a mean uppercut I believe it and I had this naive thought that if a woman with anything like your training was in a relationship with a man of somewhat comparable size and he got a little bit violent that you absolutely would be able to handle that situation. You said something really upsetting actually about that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't defend yourself if it's a romantic relationship. No, I wouldn't me personally. I I can't speak for anyone else. And you could mess a guy up. You've been trained. You could mess a guy up and you wouldn't. I think if it was the first time say the scenario was I don't know whether they'd be drinking they were stressed it was an argument and it was a the first time thing i.e I never thought it was coming I'd probably take it and I probably wouldn't defend myself and I think it also depends on the argument if are they making me doubt myself because if there's manipulation and coercion in that you're going to start questioning yourself as to, oh, did I, you know, if, you, if you're if you of a really strong mind and you're like, hold on a minute, no, that's not acceptable and you're holding your boundaries firm, then maybe, and I was convicted in myself, then maybe, yes, I probably would. If it was violence and there was a child, you probably would go much more aggressive. Yes. If anyone went to hit my child, whether I loved them or not, I'd absolutely knock them out. Right. Well, I said, well, I'd give it a good go. My point of connection to this is that at one of my first jobs working in group homes with the developmentally handicapped, I had to deal with adults who were physically aggressive at times. And I wasn't supposed to restrain them or protect myself in any way. It should also be mentioned that I took this job right after working for six months doing landscaping and construction, lifting armloads of lumber, rocks, and paving stones, smashing things with sledgehammers and chisels, dragging heavy things around, throwing planks and bits of demolished buildings over fences, shoveling endless wheelbarrows full of sand and gravel, and running said heavy wheelbarrows up steep ramps into the back of trucks. I've always been a barrel-shaped person, but never in my life before or since 
had I been so solidly built or with such low body fat. And I was working with handicapped adults who might bite, shove, kick, and push people. We were supposed to control this situation by ensuring we didn't do or say anything that might make the patients get agitated with us. I remember how oddly helpless and alone it felt to be left by myself overnight each shift with a house filled with handicapped people who were supposed to be sleeping but who might wander in the night and might also object to not being allowed to wake each other up, raid the freezer, dump shampoos down the sink, wander off up the road, turn up the TV, get into the meds or petty cash or tools in the wee hours of the night. I realized that a few of these folks were going to attack me physically if they felt like it, and they did on a few occasions. Now, physically... I was more than capable of picking most of them up bodily and tossing them out the window without opening at first. But I often felt at least a bit scared and alone working there, because when I heard the shuffling step of slippered feet on the stairs, not headed for a washroom, but instead to start a confrontation with me, it was like I was tied to a chair. I was helpless. My job was being held over my head. When a couple of those guys decided to shove and slap me, I knew I had to just take that. And then if I so much as pushed them away or defended myself with my arms in any way that could be construed as grabbing or pushing or hitting their arms away, I would reap the rage and disapproval of my fellow staff and supervisors and might lose the only job I had at that time, the only way I was able to pay my rent. Just like with educational assistants and early childhood educators in schools today, when we teachers are in danger of getting kicked, spit, or urinated on, these people usually step in and often remove these students to special rooms where they have to deal with whatever happens next one-on-one. -on -one. Schools need to buy a fair bit of replacement safety glass each and every year. These kids may be smaller than us in many cases, but if they decide they're going to kick us, we can't really do anything about it. It can be like that for men in relationships with women too, and the stereotype of women hitting husbands with frying pans, throwing bottles, dishes and cutlery at them, burning them with hot irons, pouring boiling water or coffee in their lap or the like is a stereotype, a comedy scene, in countless movies and cartoons, always hilarious in a way depictions of violence against women will never be. But police officers can tell you that this happens every day for real, and it's not as funny. Ask John Wayne Bobbitt what sleeping next to an angry woman can result in. All of the things I remember was I took a glass of water and then I found myself in the street with a penis in one hand and a knife in the other. And so, yeah, that happens. I mean, I'm telling you. It this happens. This is a true story. I am here. To, <laughs> this is the truth. This is a true story. I'm telling you and, and I'm here to tell you and to tell everyone what happened when a woman gets abused by a man. Can, can I ask you a couple questions? So, but... Yes. What what made you take it though? I mean, you cut it off, and, and I was insane. Where are you going with it? What? I don't know. I mean, that's how the reaction of yeah. Why you leave with it? That's what I'm, <laughs> I don't look. I'm not really no. sure how I want to receive this. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I know. You, you, you didn't think of just like lay it on a pillow so when he wake up. Poison and handguns are also popular with dissatisfied wives. And far too many men can tell you about the times they were shouted at and attacked with kitchen implements in the middle of the night until the neighbors called the police and standing, arms at sides and not attacking back, but being the ones the police hauled away to be charged with domestic violence. It will likely not surprise you to know that men are much less likely to confide about these kinds of things to anyone even than women are, because no one cares. But this song addresses what we and Procter and Gamble, having lost $8 million in profits from their customer base since the Men Do Better ad, expect. 
It's about a man engaging in a pattern of controlling, intimidating, and threatening a woman and her choosing to stay with him after confiding in a few of us that she wasn't safe. Starting in high school, girls, and later women, have made a beeline to me when they needed a calm, unjudgmental figure who would listen and not try to have sex with them. So I've heard a lot, far too much, in fact. Still wanted to get married myself someday anyway. And the most common story I heard is the mundane one, but it is no less damaging and life-destroying for all that. You know those guy friends I lost because of their girlfriends or wives editing their lives until all of his stuff was gone and only hers remained in the house? Women who held threats of entirely withdrawing physical intimacy or destroying his reputation, who held the relationship itself hostage, threatening to end it and demand half of everything if bank accounts weren't signed over, friends not shot out, purchases not made, no female acquaintances spoken with, and personal belonging is not disposed of immediately. Women who wield shame and vulnerability like surgeons. Women who need the man's whole life to be reshaped, to try fruitlessly to cure their chronic jealousy and suspicion. Some of the most miserable women who have confided in me have been trapped in relationships with men who, whether or not they ever get physically controlling or violent, play those same life-destroying games as the aforementioned partners of male friends do. Men who demand a complete remodeling of the woman's life and social circle then play innocent, hurt, and confused when she is found crying about her life not being her life anymore. This is what an anxious attachment-style run amok can look like. No amount of control dispelling the anxiety. No amount of intimidation making the woman leave the person who needs her to so he can feel justified in his fears that she will. Men and women who we share our beds with can be downright terrifying without ever making a clear physical threat of any kind. And some people expect everyone to treat their continual fear of being cheated on exactly as if they are actually being cheated on. I grew up with the traditional North American boomer parent family scenario with the man working out of the house and on the house, bringing in all the money and perhaps micromanaging the life of his wife at home, commenting on her weight, her clothes, her hairdos, how she spent her money and on her social and leisure activities. The differences I saw by the time I'd reached adulthood was that in many of these modern 90s cases, the man wasn't bringing in all, and in some cases any, of the money, nor working either. And women of my generation have generally made sure they were more educated than their men, often much more educated. This resulted in the traditional roles being split up very differently. Some very, very special undereducated men continued to use the better educated women in their life like an appliance or servant micromanaging her life, but did not themselves seem to reliably go out and educate themselves or work much at all. Some men weren't in any hurry to grow up. Some stayed home getting high and playing Nintendo or PlayStation while their female partners earned rent. Women living this life did not tend to feel they'd been liberated in any way, nor that there was anything equal about their relationship. Often, they'd want, traditional gender role style, to have a baby or get pregnant, and either were required to get an abortion by their live-in man-baby or were left by him for a newer model if this happened. And here's a wrinkle. You, even if you're single, can get very pulled into someone else's domestic hell as they confide in you weekly. You can care more and feel more than they do. You can hang on, what did he do now? What happened? And get more angry or scared than your friend is. In fact, those situations can be so relentlessly overwhelming, day in, day out, that the person caught in them can mainly feel numb. Sometimes they're reaching out to see if someone else will get scared or angry or whatever it is that they're not feeling themselves to a normal degree. Because they're past feeling it and need a second opinion that at this point a reasonable person would feel that. So that's your job. 
feeling the fear and pain and rage. As to the aforementioned men who treat the women they live with as if they were servants or appliances or pets or trophies or something, this results in someone not being allowed to be a whole human person with needs and feelings and plans. And in my experience, if they were already raised anything like some of us were, they may simply be continuing their childhood and church life into their adult relationship. Some parents treat their kids like they were treated. Some church leadership people do too. And this isn't just sad, it isn't just unfair, it's life-destroying. Human beings have built into them all kinds of mechanisms of exploration, growth, and change that, if stifled, start to lose them connection to living a normal adult human life. That's what's happening with some couples. And if you're not careful, you become part of that couple's dysfunctional relationship. The spouse does or says something his or her partner is numb to, and so said partner increasingly runs things by you. You can become kind of a co-conspirator with the injured party. And why don't you do what the profit-motivated, profit-losing, sanctimonious Gillette ad recommended? Why don't you stand up, speak out, step back, and take a stand against male violence against birthing persons who chest-feed and menstruate? You don't, because it's her life, and she's trusting you not to, because she knows that if you indulge your own priorities in the situation vis-a-vis -vis her private life, she might lose you as a confidant, as then she can't trust you, and he's onto your confidant role now, and he also might get angry enough to really hurt her, and all because of what you did over her wishes. You get to feel brave and virtuous, because the brunt of their response is going to fall on her in private. All you have to do is speak out. In fact, the very least likely outcome of that kind of action on your part is for him to see the error of his ways and repent of them. The second least likely outcome is that they will terminate their relationship. You sure can toss a match into the middle of that gas station with the leaking pumps, all right, and it will draw attention to the problems. But it will almost certainly make things a lot worse in a way you do not have permission or right to do. Vicky shared this. Uh, speaking from experience in the past... Uh, in some instances, you can't really save them, you can't make them leave before they're ready, so all you can really do is fear for their safety until they do. Others, it can be nowhere safe to go afterward, and oftentimes leaving is the first step. You then have to look over your shoulder to make sure you're safe, get court orders to ensure your child or children are safe. It's all very worth it, though. I believe overall supporting the person the best way you can is enough and oftentimes will help them realize the situation they're in isn't the greatest. It's not always cut and dry, sadly, and I do wish it was, but ultimately support is um, key. I mean, I've prosecuted cases where there was physical violence or threats. The first case I encountered, this, this man was, he was choking his wife or girlfriend and he'd choke her until she, she almost blacked out and then he'd release, you know, she kind of come to more and, and then and he'd do it again. And he, you know, and she's like, why are, why are you doing this? You know? And he's like, I'm not done hurting you yet. You know, just, just really vile stuff. And I had another case around that time where this woman had four, maybe five children. Uh, her husband was in jail. I was prosecuting him. And, and she came and, and she said, I need him out of jail. Uh, he's the one who works. If he's not working, we, we can't pay rent. He needs to be released. And I said, I don't want to do that. He's dangerous, you know? And, and, and she says, no, I need him out of jail. And so I, I just took this really firm stance with her. And I said, do you understand? I said, I said, he will, he'll, he'll kill you. I said, I'll end up prosecuting him for killing you. And she just 
she was this little fiery woman and she just almost kind of drew herself up and, and she just gave me this piercing stare and she said, I want him out and I want him out now. Wow. And so he was, he was ultimately released in my personal relationships, friends where, you know, I've sometimes I've just kept it short and sweet. You know, I, I kind of felt like it was headed in that direction where he might start hitting her, you know, there was just a very chaotic home. And, and I I'd say, if he hits you, you got to leave. Mm-hmm. You got to find some place to stay. And and then you just kind of hear silence on the other end. And, it, and it's like, do you, do you hear what I'm saying? And it's like, yeah. And it's like, okay, promise me you'll do that. You know, you've, and it's like, yeah, I promise, you know, and why do they stay? I mean, sometimes they stay because they love that person. Sometimes they stay because they don't love themselves or both. Right. It's, it's about basically that experience where in my case, and I'm sure same for you, where young women confide that they're in an abusive relationship with you and they keep confiding more and more to you and it puts you in an odd position. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know how to go about something like that. Because you didn't even pause. Like There's, That's happened to you, I bet. I just assume that that's happened to you because it's happened to most of us. Yeah, you don't. There's a danger level involved. Like, what's the least dangerous thing to say or do, you know? Like, uh, that you might make it worse, you mean? or Yeah, you might make it worse or, you know, people can talk about who they're with and then you know also protect them at the same time and can be it can just make it worse so it's hard to know but I think it's important to tell them things that are true and have a place to talk to you about it and also really encourage you know the health of themselves and anyone around them yeah like I'm scripting the episode about this and one of the things that I decided is that um often they are more conscious of loving the abuser than of having a problem with them. Whereas your position, you kind of hate that guy when you hear what he's doing. It's simpler for you than for her. Yes. And there's a lot of religious undertones about turning the other cheek, you know, that you get told all kinds of things. Women being passive and submissive. Yes. And loving them into a certain frame of mind. There's that put the blame on them kind of thing, which is awful. How has it turned out for you? Did you, end up that that women left these guys and you're still friends with them or they went back with them and never talked about it again or how has it generally turned out the majority of them end up do leaving them and not going back but it's very difficult for them they're they're burdened by the finances they're burdened by the failing of and, and missing something that important and some of them end up remarrying and are still sort of working through what the damage is and the debris from that it really is some of them are very similar situations, don't they? Mm-hmm. What is your answer if someone says to you, why are there patterns? Why, why do these things repeat? Why wouldn't they learn? You know, I think there's a part of them that probably empathizes with, you know, the sides of who they're with, the, their partner that they can see the wrestle maybe, mm-hmm. or they, they get confused by the lies they've been told, uh, the fear, the fear of what would happen next. I think it's a variety of things. Some people are kind of blind to crazy too, aren't they? They are. And when you don't do the work, you end up either doing it again, you know, being in the same circumstance or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it can get worse. So, I mean, it's hard to even leave something, you know, isn't, you know, like the meeting, knowing yeah. that wasn't true and leaving isn't just something you do, you know, in, in, in one move. It might be tacky, but I draw a connection between like people always say, why don't you just go to a different church? And I do draw a connection between, well, why don't you move out from your parents if you got an abusive parent when you're 14? Or why don't you leave your husband if he's a bully? 
to my mind, there's a connection there. Yeah, I think they're, they're, it's not just an easy, oh, I saw something or, I, or something happened and it's obviously this. There's a lot of um, overanalyzing it, thinking about it. Definitely a journey, it seems like. I think there's really a phenomenon where a lot of us, male and female, we actually feel pretty special if we, if we couple with someone who has a history of problematic or troublesome behavior, right? If they, if they change for us, right? Right. That's proof that we're really special. This love is real, you know, because mm-hmm. he was with five other people and, 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 you know, went to jail so many times. But with me, that's never happened. You know, I'm, I'm his soulmate. I have a feeling that you, you and I are not that guy. That's we're not being described in those terms. We're, we're being, we're being, we're being confided in about those guys when they're not on their best. Oh yeah. 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 And, and I mean, what's, you know, what's upsetting as a young man, right. You know, you find these people, you, you form these friendships and they, they kind of take, they have these romantic overtones and there's this chemistry, right. And, and just, I feel like I can tell you anything. Right. And, and so you, you, you speak into this person's life, you're supportive, you, you know, you have meals together, you, you move furniture for this person, right? You help them get reestablished. And then, you know, one day she says, Hey, I've got great news. We're getting back together. You know, and she's going back to the guy. (laughs) Or she's found another one is just as bad and she wants you to be happy. Oh yeah. Yeah. And she, she wants all of you to have drinks together. She, she can't wait for you to meet him. Mm -hmm. When a man is over controlling and suspicious and, and all that there's something really wrong with him and it's not really to do with her at all i think we agreed a hundred percent if someone's showing very manipulative and coercive behavior that will be a something wrong with them or they have potentially been triggered by their partner in some way for them to act like that now that's not me saying it's their partner's fault for triggering them because in all relationships, you're going to be triggered. Mm-hmm. There is never going to be a relationship where there's two people with no traumas, not even the slightest, where something doesn't trigger them to go, oh, that hurt, or, oh, I don't know if I like that. But a lot of and people who are abusive seem to feel or think that they're hitting back somehow. Yes. If someone's being abusive, that will can be learned behavior from their parents Mm -hmm. so therefore they believe that if someone speaks out a line you hit them they um it can also be um traumatized from childhood where maybe their needs were not met as a child and therefore in order to maybe regain some sort of control of a situation in order to protect themselves they can use certain sort of manipulative behaviors, gaslighting, mm-hmm. etc., in order to maybe provoke a reaction or to regain control. It may be an unpopular, seldom believed or politically inconvenient fact, but men tend to come with primal urges to protect, defend and even rescue women from physical danger. Instincts that are every bit as persistent and deep as nesting urges, biological clocks and so on for women. And especially in the modern world, the male experience often includes wanting to beat the living shit out of some guy who's not treating other human beings well, but knowing that superhero movies notwithstanding, 
This often can make things much, much worse rather than help anything or anyone. A lot of women can relate to that too, because we're not that different. The Hulk and Superman aside, the number of situations in life that you can better by punching them is vanishingly small. And take it from me, the most likely outcome to expect if you speak out about something that everyone knows and you're not supposed to talk about is, we know, now shut up. The thing where women confide in you about trouble in the relationship is bad enough if you're straight and are the same sex as the friend suffering in the relationship. It gets worse if, as happens more often than you'd think, you're different sexes and you fall for the person and try to protect her, rescue her. Like Batman, when something bad is going down in a dark alley, like the one where his parents were murdered. Like Tarzan, when a woman's scream rings out in the jungle where his mother died. But in real life, a world of misery lies that way, trying to rescue women. If you speak out, now the controlling, jealous spouse has more reason to be jealous. The angry, violent partner is likely to get more angry and more violent. Just try gelating him, standing up and speaking out as to his abusive, neglectful control games. He could accuse you of having feelings for his partner yourself, and he might be right. He could accuse her, again, of being emotionally unfaithful to him, and he might be right. You could tell yourself that she's obviously going to leave him soon enough anyway, but that won't cut it. You have to let relationships fall thoroughly apart without your help before trying to start one up with the abused person who seems to need you so much and who's messaging you hourly. Because if you try to start up with her while she's still entangled with him, that's never going to result in a happy, lasting relationship for the two of you now, is it? Not usually, but I know better than to say never, because regardless of the odds, most things happen eventually. But that's never gone that way for me, and I've tried, very prayerfully. Here's what Harold had to say. First woman I really, truly fell in love with. I see her all the time, her husband and her, and more power to them. But... Up until I was 28 or 29, I was convinced she would leave him for me. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a man that's been through Bible school. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is growing up with such deep insecurity, such deep uh, uh, hurt that you cling to one thing. And, and, and after we broke up, I had two different very nice women ask me, why won't you marry me? And it doesn't make sense. But humanity doesn't make sense. It takes time to mature, you know. And now I see them. She came to me and said, would you pray for him to get saved? I was offended. You wanted her to leave him for you. But, you I, pr I, but I prayed with her for him to get saved on a, I think it was a Monday night. And Thursday, somebody invited him out Friday to a full gospel businessman's breakfast. And he got saved Saturday morning. Uh -huh. And I was like jo or Jonah. I was pissed. Right. But you know what? His salvation was more, more important than me being with somebody I wasn't meant to be with. Right. But it took time. The, the only issue that I have is I can't communicate my needs very well if I'm put in a turbulent, toxic situation. So if I'm talking to my ex-husband... I can't sit there and express or communicate my needs because I'm hypervigilant. I'm in a mess because I've seen a text message or his name pop up on my phone. It sends my stomach into anxiety mode and I'm just in fight mode. Mm -hmm. You know, the guards are up, you know, I've got the army out the front, they're ready to take him on, and it could be just a normal nice message, and I'm like, oh, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Michael weighed in on the subject. Yeah, I do have a whole song about that thing where the phone keeps ringing and the women want to talk more. What do you think of that? No, it's a case-by-case issue. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes you know that you're helping the person get get further along in their thought processes in their life. And other times it's just you're you're the same old uh, sounding board uh, so that they can keep going. I have felt repeatedly like when women are in relationships with abusive or neglectful guys that they have on occasion been using me to stay longer. That if they can keep talking to me and venting the frustration, they can stay longer. Yes. I think that's bad, which I told them. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not one to judge to what extent, you know, what what the the relationship can hold. Like sometimes someone can go through that and then there can be a change of heart and and the relationship then blooms again and becomes what it started out to be. So I don't know. I I used to have very strong opinions about oh everybody, you know, it's morally evil to to separate no matter what. Um and I've come to the conclusion that that's kind of um silly to separate that there will necessarily be um places where things break. Right. And it's part of So you were raised that divorce is pretty much always wrong, but now you're a bit more open that it might be necessary sometimes? Yeah, definitely. Even without infidelity? I'm still still a, a, what do you call the bright-eyed... Starry-eyed romantic? Thank you, starry-eyed romantic that that you can make it work for it, you know. And so far, I've got it going. I like it. As part of the law class... You know, I showed them documentaries about murderers because that's their favorite. And that was part of what we did. And they were fascinated with Ted Bundy. And Mm. what they kept saying, something else you said reminded me of this. What they kept saying is Ted Bundy didn't seem like a murderer, seems. And eventually I just started finishing their sentence. Ted Bundy didn't seem like a murderer, seems, on television. Didn't seem like a murderer, seems, in a movie. Because, you know, I don't have a lot of experience of murderers. I've three of my former students have committed murder um, and they're, they're nothing like each other and the murders are nothing like each other. And you wouldn't have been able to predict which of them would have been the murderers at all. And so you're talking about abusers, like uh, men, men who end up either emotionally or physically abusing children or sexually abusing, you know, wives and girlfriends and children. Um, it's not like the Gillette ad where we see it and that we have to yeah. call it out. It's not like we're at their house having a hot dog and, they they are abusive to somebody and we need to speak out. It's something where we would never be able to suspect which of the people that we know are doing these things. Yeah. I mean, as a lawyer, do you concur that quite often you wouldn't believe these people did these things? Yes, uh, I do. And and someone, uh, another lawyer, actually a, a woman who is in her seventies, she's also a nurse by training. Mm-hmm. She pointed out, she said, Yes, this gentleman, this this guy had probably done these horrible things, but that was when they were going through a breakup and had just broken up. But now that many months have passed, she was very interested to see where he was today and, and what his mindset is, because, you know, when people are in the midst of a breakup, they often do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of like expand that thought to say, when people are in uh, chronically unhappy, stressful situations, <laughs> you know, yeah. they often do things that, that they, they wouldn't ordinarily do. 
When I was in my 20s, this happened with me a few times, with women both younger and older. They might have needed a calm, unjudgmental, strong male figure in their life who wasn't using that strength to control and stifle and intimidate them. And listening to them, lending them money, spending many hours and secret phone calls from undisclosed locations made young me feel very grown-up and manly, Superman or Spider-Manly even, rescuing some poor woman who was being oppressed. White knighting. It helped if they were prettier than any girl who'd ever actually agreed to go out with me. It helped if, as is often the case, they were smarter than the guy they were trying to leave, their intellect being a major threat to him and therefore quite often the target of his ire. It helped if they were warm, complimentary, and flirty, but not downright slutty about interacting with me, a second man in their life, a man they wanted half of to act as a much-needed supplement for the half a man they were living with. And the fact that I'd had to step in and be the main one in our family who dealt with my sister's psycho would-be fiancé started me off in my teens as to helping protect women from crazy men and feeling useful and needed. I should have noted that my sister hated me for noticing that her boyfriend was crazy well before she did, hated me more for being right about that in the end, hated needing me to deal with him for our family when he showed up, hated me for not having similar problems in my own life, and hated me for handling everything so calmly and so just generally hated me. But I didn't take note of where thinking you can rescue or protect women standing up and speaking out tends to go. Whenever someone in class with me or at my church or place of work needed to talk, I was a homing missile, a sap, a sucker for that scenario. Over and over, women told me that when they're anxious, I made them feel safe. Oh, I might want to make them feel like they're in the presence of sexual excitement personified, but that's not my thing, apparently. I make them feel safe, and not in the sense of safe sex. Safe in the sense of can be trusted not to make a sexual move. I found that I was deeply moved by the plights of these stifled, beleaguered, brutalized, intelligent, attractive young women, and I always tried to help them plot an escape route, tried to protect them, rescue them, and I sometimes fell for them at least a little bit, sometimes more than a little bit. A damsel in distress in that dress? And it sucked. Oh, how it sucked. I can't begin to tell you, but I'll try anyway. Even if you are just the same-sex friend of a straight person in a controlling relationship, you run the risk of hitching your wagon to an out-of-control roller coaster ride of confusion, anguish, and hurt. It can consume your week, too. You can easily care way too much, especially if there's not enough going on in your own life. In comics, women may need to be and be able to be rescued, but that's comics. Hard life lesson. Even if you're a fireman, you can't rescue people, not from their life choices anyway. All you can do is maybe hold their hair while they puke, hold their purse while they slap a bitch upside the head, or repeat that no, she doesn't want to talk when she has already told someone that. If people aren't going to simply repeat the same mistakes, they need to learn how to stop making those mistakes and how to get themselves, mostly on their own, with a few supportive friends cheering them on from the sidelines, out of those ruts for good. It's not any different than with the life patterns formed by addictions. You can't rescue an addict. You can't just throw away the bottles or drugs. You can't just lock them in a room and think you fixed the underlying problem. In a similar way, you can't stop women from repeatedly seeking out controlling, neglectful, and abusive men. You can be the best a man can get, or failing that, the best man you can be, and find that that's simply not what they're looking for at all. In my experience, these women will talk about leaving the guy, will leave him, will get back with him, will leave him again, will start up with a different man with similar problems, and want to confide in you about the new abuser, replace you with an alternate confidant if you won't play ball, and so on and on and on. That's why it's called a pattern. 
there's a fair number of single women out there right now. Single, yes. Unentangled with men? No. The reality is that if you hear nothing but all of the horrible things a man is doing to a woman for months, you feel nothing but hate and contempt for that guy. Hard to remember that throughout those months, she's feeling mostly love for him, with occasional interludes of unburdening herself to you as to the one problematic and sometimes literally fatal facet of life with the guy. It's part of the human condition. We, we, you know, we do have people in, the, in various communities right, who we just kind of acknowledge as these good, kind, you know, wise people, solid pillars in the community. But that doesn't necessarily translate into everybody having some area where they're just completely lost, completely clueless, or, or even batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. But to tie that to the abuse... When you hear discussions, modern discussions about abusers, it's like, well, they might be very charismatic and charming. And, and, you know, you think that this person never could be abusive. And it's kind of portrayed as if, oh, this is an act. You know, you don't know the real person. Mm -hmm. But I think the reality is probably more complex. I think maybe he really, truly is genuinely charming because he genuinely cares about people. Or he's very kind and generous with money, his time, his efforts, or whatever. But he just has no self-control when it comes to handling his anger at home. And he's not, say, trying to hurt anybody. But he hasn't made that connection that, hey, you know, why are you speaking that way to your loved ones, to your wife and to your children? You would never, you would never, ever speak that way to your boss or to, uh, to a stranger even. You know, you feel that because you're at home and it's your house, you're, you're, you know, like, I mean, I had a, I had a situation with my son that was, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. He had done something and he was very little and I wasn't separated from his mother at that point. I don't think I was still living there and things were very bad at home, by the way. But I remember I was struck because I had some decree or whatever that I had about, well, how, this is how it has to go. And, and, and he says, why do we have to do that? Why, why does it have to be that way? And I looked at him and without even thinking, I said, I said, okay, whose house is this? And he looked right back at me and said, everybody's, everybody mm-hmm. who lives here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I knew that was a God moment, you know, like where just this child was, he, and he wasn't defiant, mm-hmm. but, but he, he didn't understand the rule. It didn't seem right to him. And he said, well, why do we have to do that? And then I just wanted to brush it you know, away. Like, well, you know, whose house is this? Well, that's right. It's my house. You know, and I said so, yeah. but that's not how life works. And I think in God's economy, right, I said before that there's various streams of thought in terms of patriarchy. I think there's hyper patriarchy, right? There's ungodly or, or, or wicked, abusive patriarchy. And I think there's, you know, almost certainly just kind of a healthy, robust, like, yeah, you know, there's, there's guys who are protecting and providing for their families. They're kind of acknowledged as the head. Maybe the team captain might be a good, good word to use. And they don't have free reign, like just because they say something and they happen to be dad or happen to be husband doesn't mean that it's gospel. One pretty, big-eyed, busty, long-haired little woman with a child, which woman I knew through work, confided in me for a year, at first at work, then by secret phone calls. A married, middle-aged, Plymouth Brethren man from her work, who was obviously besotted with her, phoned me privately and told me to stay the hell away from her. He was calling dibs in a menacing way on this abused married woman. The big dog barking at the young pup, me, I chose to ignore him as I was increasingly choosing to ignore the advice of many Plymouth Brethren men as to my life choices at that point. And, as often happened, he lacked the boots to do anything about what I was doing, and is dead now anyway. So there's that. Two years later, 
After having taken the child and left the job and her husband and given me some pretty steamy, suggestive phone calls I absolutely did not use as invitations to drive on over and start a physical relationship with her, she ran into me at the shopping mall. And the child and her abusive husband were with her. They were obviously back together. One happy family. And we all said hi and were nice. I'd known him only by reputation as an incredibly crazy, pill-addicted, controlling, abusive person. But there he was, smiling down at me, clearly someone he'd heard nothing at all about. I didn't tell him about the songs and poems I'd written about their situation, as back then I wrote poems and songs about anything I was thinking or feeling much about at all. I often wrote every day. He took the child by the hand and walked off, and as she was telling me it was so great to see me again, she dropped her handful of baby stuff on the parking lot. She picked it all up, blouse gaping dramatically as I helped her, and as she was about to leave, I noticed a baby bottle nipple on the asphalt of the parking lot. I pointed and said, there's a rubber nipple, she said with a bit of a saucy warm look in her eyes. Yeah, I said, it's not one of mine, she said, and left with a smile, sauntering back toward her husband, who had not bothered to come back to help her pick up the dropped baby stuff. It's like she was giving a wee tug on my libido, just because she could. There's a host of annoying lessons about human nature just waiting to be learned right there. You can do your damnedest to be as patient, as self-sacrificing, as pure, as insightful, kind, and wise as Jesus, and you will be reminded that Jesus doesn't get the girl in the end. He is rejected by society and killed. Oh, he comes back all right, but alone. And then he leaves again, alone. And before you assume that when a silly young man who grew up sneaking forbidden stories about Batman and Spider-Man, Tarzan and Captain Kirk every chance he got, falls for a sad-eyed, abused woman, showing her affection or commitment is going to be very much unwanted from her end, let me tell you from hard experience, quite often you're feeling that connection in part because she's repeatedly doing whatever it takes to get and keep you in her life. It takes two to tango, or three in cases like these. Susan Isaacs said this. Right, you've been stuck in the friend zone they want to confit on. Um, well, first of all, I think women, a part of it is the nesting instinct and the mothering thing it, it, that women stay longer in bad relationships because there's a sense of investment of trying to make it work. Mm -hmm. I just There's a certain amount of biology there. But that's what you describe as like getting in the friend zone. And that is a kind of abuse where women want a guy, they want the attention. But there's so there's all these reasons that we have these people that we want to confide in. I, I had a couple of people like that. I become the mother confessor, the best, you know, being stuck in the friend zone. And then that has to do a lot with our expectations of what romance and relationships are supposed to be. Let's blame and, Hollywood. Yeah, but it's been around even before that. I mean, Shakespeare. Let's, let's you know, blame Jane Romeo Austen. But let, let's go there because... Um, yeah. I mean, I grew up and I heard friend zone thought, well, yeah, that's, I definitely know what that is. But I have heard some, you know, some pretty compelling feminist arguments that it's a terrible thing to say, because if you say you're in the friend zone, you're acting like if you listen to their problems, they owe you sex. And that's that's not right. You want more than just sex. You want a relationship. Well, and that's that's also um, that's false attribution syndrome. And that's unfair. Because the problem with that, it's basically allowing the woman to get everything that she wants and not allowing the man to have anything that he wants or his expectation, because yeah. that breeds intimacy. And men express love through physical, through sex, through a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But that's also damning a man's desire for closeness in that way as something 
automatically evil. And it's not. Uh, Dennis Prager had a woman on his show. Her husband had passed away. And she, a lot of times when he wanted to have sex, she just kind of pushed him away. And she realized, you know, that's how he connected. That's how he expressed Mm -hmm. his care for her. And I think the feminist idea, I mean, yeah, there's plenty of jerks who just want that and they don't want anything else and they're abusive. But I think the flip side of that is women who want all this emotional thing out of a guy or, or they want some kind of stability or, or, or but don't want anything. And that's just as bad. I, I, I just think that that's unfair to characterize what a man wants as somehow, that's what I call toxic femininity. It is unfair, but the other... The other side of it that I was aware of, because I, I, you said mother confessor, so I think you know what I'm talking about, where you just seem mm-hmm. to be the person that people go to to tell their problems and about their relationships. Mm-hmm. I don't know what makes people pick some of us and not others, but I've been at a, at a party, you know, had just, you know, come out of a really bad relationship and a coworker decided to confide in me, you know, endlessly. And I had just had years of this with somebody that I fell for. And I said to her, like, I don't want to hear this story. Like, I didn't come to, and she was like, no, 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 shut up, shut up, shut up. Here, listen. And, and I was like, okay, I don't want to hear this. She's like, no, 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 shut up. Like, here's what he did. And she was a very nice person, but she was saying shut up because that's my role. That's my job. And we weren't even that close. So I was just her coworker, but she had pegged me as that's that, that sort of guy. The sort of guy she's with is the one who cheated on her. And I'm the other sort of guy that she tells about the guy. So I'm a beta mm-hmm. and he's an alpha, I guess. Unlike in my case, sometimes the interested, caring friend who's listening is a woman, and sometimes she starts an affair with this fascinating abuser she's hearing so much about. But that's someone else's story to tell. Put another way, a childhood friend commenting on my problems with this particular situation one time, speaking as a woman in an abusive, controlling relationship with an addict with mental problems herself, said, People always think that in a bad relationship there's one screwed-up, manipulative person and a normal person who just needs to leave. Really, there are always two screwed-up, manipulative people. And I would add, get too emotionally invested in that woman getting out of that relationship, and there are three. She knew what she was talking about. Back when she started dating a guy I knew would be a monster for her to live with, I expressed concern, and she told me to go f*** myself. There have been decades now to talk about how badly things went, and I am not happy to have seen this coming. People, pushed to extremities, will do whatever it takes to try to get by. I wrote a whole concept album to try to deal emotionally with the experience of being involved for a couple of years with one of the women this happened with, me hanging around hoping against hope that if I avoided taking advantage of her sexually, didn't complicate things by making it physical, if I slept on my couch when she needed a bed when things got worse than usual, that this would be my path to a healthy, lasting, mutually satisfying relationship. I buy secondhand cars, guitars, music gear, computers, and even houses that are fixer-uppers, right? Makes me feel I can get something that's better than I can afford in the conventional way, put in some time and a whole bunch of work, and make it even better and closer to my heart than ever. In fact, I still use a guitar amp that had been thrown out to the trash in the early 90s, and which I then put a lot of TLC into and wouldn't trade for the world now. You'll hear it in the song this episode is about. People have offered me more for it than it's worth. It's pretty much all I ever use. But that TLC and fixer-upper thing hasn't worked out for me with women at all, and I've tried it more than once. Choosing the most high-maintenance and most beautiful women going, and then trying to fix them when they don't believe they can or maybe don't even want to ever be fixed, no matter how messed up their lives genuinely are, has been a really stupid strategy. 
Women don't like being made to feel like anything at all needs to be fixed about them. They want their ego stroked, usually, to be told they are perfect just the way they are, beautiful inside and out, yes, queen. A couple of times in my life I've had girls show up and crying and bawling because a friend of mine hurt them and they'd throw themselves and it was like, no, don't do that. No. Don't do that. If you jump into a relationship with me right now, then nothing in your life changes. I didn't date until after my divorce came through. Wouldn't even date. And I was told it would take a number of years. Don't try to get married. Don't try to anything. You need time to heal. And at the time, although I knew it was true, I didn't believe it. But it was a long time before I thought about getting serious again. Mm -hmm. And it's because, do you really want to go and dump this new baggage on somebody? And when you hook up with somebody to either carry your baggage or for you to carry theirs, it's doomed. And I know there's people out there who will disagree. You know, all the psychology training I have but has taught me that, you know, people have to deal with their own stuff first, you know. And, and if she was going to break up with somebody, she can't run to somebody else, you know. Uh, the other thing is, if they'll leave somebody to be with you, will they leave you to be with somebody new, mm-hmm. you know. And and uh, that's, that's why, you know, uh, I have an ex girlfriend I hung out with and she was calling me from the states and talking to me about how depressed and stuff she was and I got online and found her a good church to go to and found her a counselor and and talked to her about getting hooked up into martial arts so she had some place to get rid of her aggression and stuff and Mm -hmm. we haven't spoken years you helped her instead of trying to pursue a Um, relationship with her if God gives you a relationship it's about two not one And if a relationship is based on, okay, my job is to fix you, it's not a relationship. But you know what? I've found that even if I really, really, really don't want to listen to women telling me their problems and bad life choices and situations, often they're going to insist upon telling me anyway. Like it's what God put me on earth to do. Sometimes I think if there were no human beings standing where I was at the time, some of these women would tell their situation and how they got into it to a telephone pole or mailbox. Sometimes I think Van Gogh sent an ear to his ex because he was being sarcastic. So you must have some sort of like aura about you that's like, yeah, I choose this guy to help me. Um, I mean, that's a compliment, by the way, but it's just super funny that it's like you've taken another one of us under your wing to help which I think is super cute so thanks for all of your help and support and guidance and chattiness but um it is kind of funny when I was at teachers college the most neurotic perfectionist OCD woman in our program started following me around and confiding in me clearly finding me soothing like Prozac with a beard I made her feel safe she made me feel uncomfortable and until recently I always assumed that there was something very sex role-based about men wanting to rescue women, to be a hero, to be fatherly, to be a superman. But I've been shown very clearly recently that women do this too, all the time. They are in love with a guy, maybe even one who dumped or rejected them or who abuses them, and they think they can rescue him, mother him, save him from himself, get his life sorted out. Women tell me that it's an all-too-common state of affairs for women to see a guy who grew up with zero ability, vocabulary, interest, or habit of dealing with feelings and relationships in the past and so on, and to feel that if only that guy would open up and let her in, 
she could make all the difference where all women before her had failed. Important to know this. Today, I can't imagine releasing that whole concept album about dealing with an abused woman in any form. It has a lot of creativity, but I was miserable when I wrote it, really lost and reaching, so it contains a lot of dark, gothy melodrama and the usual lame attempts at humor. I'm afraid, in my deranged, extreme 90s, snarky young brain, I thought it would be funny to call the album Violins Against Women and to have deeply sincere, sad, upsetting songs about the realities of domestic violence and strife and include violins played throughout, with a cover depicting a bunch of butterick dress models voguing around, but with a clumsily pasted-in violin leaning up against the ankle of each one, for the pun and the music alike trying to sneer and laugh about something that I found incredibly upsetting to be involved in. And that's not a good look. No one wants to listen to me joke about abused women. No one wants to see me struggle to find myself and free myself and not be manipulated by a few of them while being sarcastic about it. You can joke about men pretty much any way you like of late, because we don't care. You have to be very careful how you talk about women because they're feelings. So I'm not going to go there. But I'll re-record you one song from the album written in this dark time this song. And it took me a while to make up my mind whether to include any mention of this album, or which, if any, song to include from it. I went with one that is mainly about my experience of things, leaving her out of it as much as possible, given the circumstances, which seems most appropriate. That's my story to tell, more than hers. And victim? Rescuer? Abusive monster? The damsel in distress, with one guy for the attitude and the dick, and another guy for the ears and the caring? Those were all looking to me like roles we were playing back then. Costumes, really. Ones we were putting a lot of work into wearing whenever we interacted. Any of the three of us could go for months without seeing the others, and upon meeting any of them, pick it right back up again. And my understanding understudies were near too, waiting to don the Superman cape if I lost interest in wearing it. To be even more caring and giving and long-suffering than I was able to be. Oh, the misery was real. The pain, the brutality, the compassion, the camaraderie. But it wasn't working. We were all being played by each other, and we all felt that. So this song is a hard pill to swallow, a hard thing to get across. The experience of being frustrated and annoyed and fearing for the safety of a trapped, terrified little woman with big Betty Davis eyes and a very calculating mind. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walking to the Wicked Mailbag opening. About brethren marriages in general, Joanne writes, Growing up in the semi-closed brethren, I always felt like there were a lot of contradictions surrounding dating and marriage. As a woman, I was supposed to find someone at a Bible conference I went to maybe three times a year, but even saying hi to guys was somehow construed as pursuing, which was absolutely not something for girls to do. So it created like this weird feeling of needing to do something I couldn't actually do. Now that I'm no longer a part of it, relationships and marriage seem way less complicated. It's easier to just be natural and honest. I'm thankful for a lot of the foundation of understanding marriage, roles, and respect, but also glad I'm not under bondage of the weird and, let's face it, somewhat misogynistic ideas that pervade thinking within that group at large. I do think a lot of people there have healthy marriages, but I do not think there is much help or support for women suffering abuse. Essentially, as a woman, you are forced upon the mercy of men with no real options to set healthy boundaries or take charge of your own life. 
Overall, I think there's a strong feeling of mysticism about marriage and not a lot of practical perspective. It just seems super stressful and intentionally almost impossible, which I'm finding out was essentially an artificially created environment. When asked why so many women we know seem to stay in relationships with men who treat them horribly, Curry wrote, There are people imminently more qualified than me to offer an opinion on this matter, but I was asked, so I'll provide my thoughts. Insecurity and fear of being alone. I imagine some women feel they have to put up with abuse as they suffer terrible self-worth issues. Sad situation. Children. For the kids. He's a really great dad. The woman feeling she has to endure abuse for the sake of the kids. This would be compounded if her family really likes him and the abuse is totally concealed. Financially trapped, especially if the income disparity is big. Abused women should get help and lots is available in our society. The abuse is not likely to get better or stop. If the abuse is physical, call 911 immediately after the incident. The police and the justice system have mechanisms in place to help and protect women in this situation. As a father of two daughters and a man with a traditional view of gender roles, meaning I feel men should protect women, this issue is a hard line for me. It should never happen. Never. Just end the relationship and get help and support for your temper and immaturity. Women can be incredibly frustrating and infuriating, no doubt, and emotionally and verbally abusive. This is never an excuse or justification to be violent or abusive to a woman. Final note, if you are a man and claim to be physically abused by a woman, just shut up. No one cares, and rightfully so. There are those traditional Leonard County gender roles right there. Women are going to need help all the time with everything and have much more delicate feelings, so get used to that, and men need to shut up and be okay. You'll notice that the lyrics are about stuffing my feelings deep down, just like suppressing the need to vomit, being as numb as I could to what was going on. No denial, though. I was telling myself I was doing that in order to carry on. I was telling her. I was telling close friends, and I put it in a song, too. There's no denial or Freudian repression. It was brute force, emotional suppression, just like what I grew up with in my family and in my church. You may notice from the songs on the album that is the subject of this podcast season that I was going through the fairly typical negative experiences of rejection, breakup, and romantic failure, but without almost any of the good times or connection, appreciation, affection, and acceptance that were supposed to precede that apple cart getting tipped over and torched. I have somehow managed throughout my life to get repeatedly broken up with by women I never really quite got together with in any conventional relationship way. I listened to the problems, but I didn't go shopping for the future. We met in secret, mostly. I was never arm candy for anyone, and I never will be. I was always someone who required explanation to others, which explanation has generally been deemed not worth attempting. What you want from a guy is one who automatically fits and wins the acceptance of your friend group, not one who needs to come with a warning label or a set of instructions. And throughout this, yes, I was rejecting and ignoring interested women on occasion. I think looking back, though, they would have been much worse choices to pursue even than the misbegotten connections I did invest in. And sad as it is to say, I think I fell for the least crazy women, the vast assortment of crazy women who said I made them feel safe. As near as I could tell, I wasn't making most other women feel anything at all. Now, I know that talking about women who are crazy makes me sound like this very special YouTuber who feels the need of wearing both a tie and a handgun to dispense these pearls of wisdom on YouTube. Above an eight hot and between about a seven and a five crazy, this is your wife's zone. Okay? When you meet this girl, you should consider a long-term relationship. Uh, this zone is not scaled to size. 
this this is a this is a representation and not an actual. If this is not a pie chart showing you how many of these people are out there. This is simply a, a representation of what you're after. You want to be five to seven crazy above an eight hot. That's your wife's zone. Okay. Now, below a five crazy and above an eight hot, this is your unicorn zone. These things don't exist. Now, admittedly, I'm just a straight guy, so what would I know? But looking at this YouTube video, I think I'd have to give this guy at best a four on the hotness axis. So the easy thing is to dismiss this guy as a sexist and in so doing not address the point that women you may be trying to form a relationship fit on a spectrum of crazy. And if you live with them for any length of time, you will feel their level of sanity is perhaps not pristine. I think I will do the harder thing. Simply say that yes, he's 100% right about women but about men too. And if we were trying to date men, we'd meet far more than our share of crazy there as well. I wish I could say I've only known of one woman who left her crazy abusive man long after he'd already trashed a bunch of her stuff and killed a family pet or two like he was gearing up to something more personal, but that would be far from the truth. In case you're wondering, I did start talking to an online therapist about all these things and my experiences of rejection. Found a guy, put in the time, ran my patterns as to interactions with women by him for a couple of years. Talked about growing up either without proper boundaries being respected or with needless boundaries that proved nearly insurmountable being put in place all around me by my family and church. Talked about my having a thing about rejection. Then, right before COVID, Dominic suddenly ghosted me. That didn't help my rejection baggage at all. It didn't help any more recently when he then suddenly emailed me a copy of his new novella a year after ghosting me. Intrigued, I googled him this week and found he'd lost his license to practice as a therapist because of two sexual assault allegations and charges made against him involving female patients. He was a therapist in the sense that Daryl Hammond, playing Sean Connery on Saturday Night Live's Celebrity Jeopardy skit, would recognize. Mr. Connery, why don't you pick? <laughs> It looks like this is my lucky day. I'll take the rapists for 200. That's therapist. And to make matters worse, he'd done a session or two with me after he'd lost his license. One of the hard things about being me is that suppressing everything you're not repressing was such a habit. I've never related to crybrags posted on social media over shows or movies saying things like, at first I just teared up. 40 minutes in, I was crying, and then I was sobbing, and by the end, I was full-on ugly crying. Just a melted mess on the couch. Thank you so much for making this life-changing movie. I am no Kevin Smith, who lately gains most of his fame through performative, unironic crying over how ravaged Disney acquisitions somehow make him feel. As I once told a girl who was hinting as to the likelihood of my engaging in some infidelity with her, I am all about no. Because I am. I was raised that way. And maybe it's me to begin with. I don't come from a family that says yes to anyone for any reason. Do you like Jeff? I have no trouble with Jeff. The weather? Could be worse. Are you going to show up there? You never know. There are many kinds of music that I love to listen to but can't sing myself. One of those is punk. You know, first there were the Sex Pistols and Ramones and so on, and a screechy, nasal rasp kind of singing developed into a genre. Then, in the 90s, it was back, only American, 
and you had the thick guitar, made even lusher but more soft and cushiony, and either a bratty 90s boy teen punk sound or a cute 90s girl teen punk sound. Well, I was, I am, trying to make a mid-COVID, 2020s middle-aged dad voice punk. When I put a brief video of my playing bass for proof of concept on this song, really wrestling with doing it, so I was using a capo and a super thin pick to make it possible for my nerve-damaged hands to do it at all, Within 10 minutes, I had not one but three different comments telling me not to do the only thing I could work out for MS-handed bass parts. Like several of the previous songs, and quite few of the upcoming ones, I was very into the guitar work of Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols for this one, and all about turning my amp up all the way halfway to see if I could get more of a punk aesthetic going. I made the guide track for George to play drums on, limiting myself to a pair of distorted guitar parts mainly... with an extra couple put in to play accents, Steve Jones style. I struggled mightily with the bass, knowing what I wanted and not being able to do it, ending up with what sounded like a little bit of a weedy, trickly little part to my ears. I also really didn't like my vocals, though I layered all kinds of Alice Cooper snarling and growling stuff all over it to try to make something of it. You decide to stay or leave him, but I feel it hard in mind. And this song didn't get done at the original drum session Serge and I did with George, and things in the intervening time were not coming together at all. George got his hand caught while hooking up a trailer and smashed it pretty badly right around when Evan was coming home at the end of his term at school for Christmas and was therefore not near the digital kit he'd been using for me while he was away for the term. So there were more delays and very few options. George wasn't able to promise for sure, but intimated his intention to try to do drums on both Serge's music and mine once his hand felt a bit better. While waiting for George's hand to get better, Serge asked me for discrete vocal and guitar tracks so he'd have more control over what George was hearing while laying down some drums. And I really hated how the vocals sounded. So right in the middle of COVID, I casually slapped down a COVID-throated vocal part. You decide to stay or leave him, but I feel it hard in mine. With a pair of additional takes to beef it up, you decide to stay or leave him, but I feel it hard in mine. And I sent that over and waited to hear if the recording was going to happen. We talked about recording on the Monday, but Monday and Tuesday went by with no word. I'd gotten over most of my COVID symptoms by then. But when Serge let me know Wednesday was intended to be a drum tracking session for one of his songs so he could do mine as well, he told me he felt more comfortable with me not coming over. He'd just gotten rid of his COVID cough himself, so I had to trust the two of them to come up with something and send it my way once Serge ran it through some plugins. For no good reason, I had this irrational fear that George might not know to play aggressively enough for the feel of the song, so I was pretty elated when the file showed up and the room mic sounded like this. 
While mixing the newly emailed drum tracks, I hadn't been there to see what mics had been used and so on. So when I saw that Serge had labeled one of the tracks American, I was curious, I had a suspicion, and once I googled American microphone and saw an odd-looking silver vintage mic, I knew what had happened. Serge, being French, had spelled American like Américain. This unique old mic was in there to help me get a more boxy, odd sound to mix into the mix, something that Serge likes a bit, I like a lot, and George doesn't necessarily see the point of doing. I now had a nice, repetitive little punk song that needed stuff to make it more interesting. The start needed some lead work now. And I wanted to do a bridge. Now, punk doesn't normally do a lot of guitar soloing and harmony vocals and stuff, but I decided to make the bridge part have quieter, contrasty vocals. And the light bulbs all go black And the phone hangs up itself And I wait before it rings Watch you die Once I'd got the drum tracks back, I wanted to redo the bass, strumming one string at a time instead of two, using a heavy pick instead of a light one to get a more powerful, distinct sound out of it, instead of blending it in with the guitars like I was trying to do. I sneaked in a tiny bit of keyboard strings. I also stuck some fairly unsubtle shakers in there with the drums. kind of reminded me of what a dark place I was in when I wrote these songs and how much horror movie vibe I found I was throwing at them. It was tearing at my heart and it was screaming in my soul it was filling up my head and it was drowning out my mind so i tinkered with the time it would take to live everything it took its toll now it's all numbing i'm real used to feelings of that kind Says a lot about I, says a lot about me But you'll have to take the word from it Cause there's nothing you're gonna see Says a lot about me, it says a lot about I But I almost never grow up, and I almost never cry If we're both feeling your shredded feelings And I'm all 
got distance and you've got numbness and also all the choice you decide to stay on deep here but I feel it hard of mine I need some distance and I need some numbness or oh, your brain Light bulbs all go black Oh, it's a bit Right.